This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. They were a little bit stunned. After the election, they did not expect Trump to win. They did not expect to be blamed for what happened. And they cannot expect us to believe they're just a fun platform to put cat videos on. Th those were legitimate. Those were Russians. They were not Russians. I don't go with the Russians. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So the indictments and pleas are coming fast and furious from Mueller, who pelted dozens more charges at Paul Manafort and his flunky Rick Gates yesterday. This led Gates today to indicate he's going to plead guilty this afternoon or sometime today and cooperate with the investigation, meaning give up Manafort. Trump's former campaign chairman or maybe even other members of the Trump campaign in exchange for lighter punishment. I need to insert quickly here that I believe now and will always believe that Paul Manafort is the only figure in this whole thing who deserves a staid, serious, multi-volume biography. Only Manafort has the gravitas, the Machiavellian intelligence, the actual depravity, the oleogenous charm, and the bottomless greed to be a truly dark villain. The rest of them are carny lightweights who both do terrible things, but also disgrace the name of villain. In other news, Trump is saying nitwit stuff about guns and teachers and talking about his bald spot at CPAC. I try like hell to hide that bald spot, folks. I work harder. But we have a big topic today and two guests, and I want to get right into it. The topic is Facebook and its role in the 2016 election, the Mueller investigation, and the complete vertigo of our time. My guests are Siva Vaidyanathan, a professor at the University of Virginia who's just written a book about Facebook called Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Has Disconnected Citizens and Undermined Democracy, and Nick Thompson, the editor of Wired Magazine, who's just published an extensively reported story about two years of hell at Facebook with Fred Fogelstein. Nick is joining me in the studio, and Siva is joining us on the line. Welcome to both of you. Pleasure Thank to be you, here. Virginia. It's very good to be here. Okay, so we this is the, the complete Facebook wall-to-wall. -wall. This is like when they ran, they did full marathons of just Madonna videos yeah. um, on MTV. We're doing just <laughs> Facebook today. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and I was going to say, Facebook has it coming. One thing that I keep thinking of is, did Facebook just have 
two bad years or did we just have two bad years visited upon us by Facebook? So is Facebook here, <laughs> is Facebook the villain or the or the victim of a very difficult year for information space? Nick has some good ideas about this and he spent a lot of time talking to people at actual Facebook to clarify this. <laughs> Talk us through the piece. So, um, well, I'll get to I'll answer that question, which is a great question. Um, so the story is about, you know, the two years at Facebook and it begins with kind of the beginning of the spreading of misinformation on Facebook and the debate over the trending topics module. So the trending topics module is this little thing on Facebook, which tells you the biggest things in the news. And there are a bunch of people who work there and they're journalists and they're recent Columbia journalism school graduates. And Facebook at that time kind of wanted the world to think it was all algorithmic, but they had a bunch of humans making sure that, you know, satire didn't appear as news. But these humans are contractors and they're not particularly happy and they're also journalists. So they leak stuff to their friends. So the story begins with a battle over basically debates inside of Facebook over Black Lives Matter. And one of Mark Zuckerberg's messages gets leaked by somebody on trending topics. Facebook ultimately tracks him down, fires him and one of his roommates who doesn't do anything. So that's the beginning of the story. Yeah. Right. And the way the reason we began that way is because it kind of sets up the fight over truth, the fight over what can be done by humans, what should be done by algorithms, the fight over Facebook and journalism. But the other reason we did that is that it then quickly leads into somebody else who works in the trending topics module, leaking a story saying it's biased against Republicans, that going completely viral and then Facebook going nuts. Because remember, Facebook, they're all liberal Democrats. Right? They all want Hillary to win, but they really don't want to be seen as biased. Mm-hmm. And so then they panic. They bring in all these Republicans to a meeting. They break bread. They try to make peace. They're really worried about regulation. This Republican meeting that you describe in the piece is is pretty astounding. Yeah. So they call in people like Glenn Beck, but also people all at odds with each other. So. Yeah, that was kind of the point. And this is one of the funniest things in reporting where, you know, we're speaking with as many people as we can. We knew that the scene was going to be part of the story. So we call everybody who might have been involved in planning it or been to it. And what we learned piecing together accounts is that they literally came up with an invite list deliberately designed to make people fight. So that when Mark and Cheryl, Mark Zuckerberg and Cheryl Sandberg come in, they don't have a unified opposition. They have a bunch of people who are like libertarians, conservatives, a bunch of people who just kind of want to figure out how to get more attention for their own pages. (laughs) And then not only that, they have somebody else come in who deliberately kind of tries to bore them, right? Like, let's give them all the details about trending topic. Let's go through the algorithms to try to kind of take the air out of the room. Apparently quite successful. So they have this meeting, which is amazing. But then the big consequence, the real reason we started and the thing that matters for everything that's to follow is that after this, Facebook says, we're not going to upset the Republicans. We're not going to do anything that could be perceived as bias against Trump. And that's one reason they miss all the fake news and perhaps why they missed all the Russian ops. It wasn't that they were so afraid of this little crowd that they brought in, including Glenn Beck. It wasn't Beck and so forth who scared Zuckerberg into um, falling into line and, and being well, being deferential, say, to um, to Republicans and to the right, it was, you say, it was Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. So, well, Rupert Murdoch, right. So Zuckerberg's afraid of a lot of things. And, and at that moment, he's afraid of the 16 Republicans slightly. He's more afraid of Senate regulation. But then the thing that really shakes Zuckerberg up comes maybe two months later. So in July of 16, at the Herb Allen conference, which is, you know, this friendly conference, all these billionaires. It's where you see those photos of Jeff Bezos and like shorts and sunglasses. Um <laughs> And Rupert Murdoch has a villa, and he and Robert Thompson meet in the villa with Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, and Dan Rose, another Facebook executive. And Murdoch 
takes him to the woodshed. And Murdoch says, you know, it's not one of the, it's not a pleasant meeting. Murdoch really threatens and says, you need to figure this out. You need to make Facebook better for the media industry. And that's a totally legitimate point, right? And it's the point that lots of people in the media industry feel that Facebook has taken the whole digital ad business, that media companies put their content on Facebook. It makes people more willing to use Facebook and all the money flows to Facebook. One way of interpreting that meeting is Murdoch wants better terms. He wants Facebook to be more open to publishers. He wants um, Facebook to explain algorithmic changes. The way Zuckerberg leaves the meeting is, oh my God, Rupert Murdoch's going to come after us. And what Zuckerberg fears is that Murdoch, all of his newspapers and televisions are going to start, I don't know, running stories about antitrust, <sighs> running stories about why Facebook should be regulated, helping, I don't know, the European regulators are going to put all kinds of impositions on Facebook. So Zuckerberg is terrified, not of what Murdoch has actually threatened, right? What Murdoch threatens in that room, as best as I can tell, is... He will speak publicly criticizing Facebook and he will be tough on them. What Zuckerberg hears is there will be a media campaign against him. Now, to the News Corp people, Zuckerberg's interpretation is totally wrong. They would never threaten that, (laughs) right? They would never tell their journalists to do that. (laughs) But it doesn't matter in a way because that's what Zuckerberg thinks, according to all the people we, we talk to about this. So Zuckerberg comes back after that meeting and he's like, oh my God, we're gonna have to change our relationship to the news industry. And so that's, the start of a beginning of shift inside of Facebook. And so how does it shift? And Siva, feel free to, j- to jump in if, it, it, you yeah. know, I know, I know we're, we're ramping up to D-Day, which is the election, obviously. <laughs> um, but, then, um, but then the fallout at Facebook has been very, um, you've observed it very closely as uh, someone about to publish this book on Facebook. Right. Um, yeah, so this, this um, pretty soon after the Murdoch meeting, trending topics change substantially well what happens with trending topics is they fire all the humans right (laughs) Right. they literally fire them all they have a debate should we i mean as as i understand it and this is a slightly contentious point there's a debate internally and it's not like there are three totally clear options but one option is keep everything the same have a bunch of contractors who kind of filter trending topics the other option is promote them to staff so they don't feel so bad and maybe they'll stop leaking and being a pain in our butts yeah and the third is this is dumb just fire them. We can do this all by algorithm. We don't need humans to sort truth from fiction. And right. they choose option fire them. Problem is they do that quickly and the algorithms aren't ready. So immediately after they do that, the trending topics algorithm starts to surface BS. They do fix it, right? <laughs> um, but it is like, it's a very interesting moment because it's it's sort of a metaphor for the larger problem at Facebook, which is Facebook has always thought of itself as a platform, not a publisher. It hasn't hired all the humans you need to think through what is opinion, what is news, what is true, what is not true, what is satire, what is news. And then the few it has, it fires. I mean, it seems to me that one of the big takeaways from the story that Nick and Fred put together for Wired is is that Facebook has never been comfortable with the idea of providing journalism, being a key player within either journalism or politics. Like it, there's this constant deniability about the very inherent political nature of Facebook and just as importantly, the political nature of the people on Facebook, right? I mean, if, if Zuckerberg had his way, the experience of being on Facebook would be a lot like, you know, what 
university students in 2005 experienced. Uh, lots of updates on friends and dates and parties and food and pets and, you know, as people grew older, kids and weddings and divorces and, you know, life stuff. And, and frankly, that's why most of us signed up for Facebook in the first place, to keep track of the babies and the puppies and the constellation of our friends and family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and so what we see in, in, the, in the plot of this wonderful piece that you've put together is, is the notion that there were very instrumental moments when Facebook decided to take journalism seriously. The the idea that Twitter might become more important to our daily lives than Facebook was a, was a bit of a threat. And they thought, oh, we'll just envelop that function and we'll start um, being the place one can turn to for updates on the world. And they felt like they were pretty comfortable and confident in how they would do that. And that turned out not to be comfortable. Uh, and they lost their confidence pretty quickly but you know and they and their interactions with the political world what we know now is they have been placing embedding facebook staff with major political campaigns around the world for several years from the advertising point of view to try to teach campaigns how to use facebook advertising more effectively well you know that just means that uh Facebook is getting deeper and deeper enmeshed in the practice of politics around the world. But to Facebook, it's advertising is advertising is advertising. And to Facebook, content is content is content. It all gets amplified by the same terms and and by the same algorithms. So what you end up is is this scrambled mess that has made us unable to operate collectively as a republic or, or, or even confront our problems collectively. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, and and one thing I'll, I'll just quickly add here is in the constant conversation about what kind of company Facebook is, um, I keep going back to my times at Yahoo News. Now, Yahoo News does great reporting, but pretty early in there, I said, I don't understand what Yahoo is. Is it a tech company? Is it it's trying now to do media? And um, someone said, Ask yourself if there's a First Amendment lawyer on staff if you want to know if you're doing journalism. And there certainly wasn't. So so once you kick out these these journalists who, you know, going back a few years, Facebook and Twitter did want to hire traditional journalists in order to give themselves the sheen of legitimacy in these spaces. And they started talking about fact checking and little bit, bits and pieces of ideas from journalism without, as I say, without having, you know, real First Amendment lawyers on hand to really talk about the mission, to talk about this as a kind of fourth estate project. Yeah. But they wanted to clean things up a bit. Anyway, you fire these guys, then you get this headline and back to your, your piece, Nick. The headline a couple days after these guys are fired and the algorithm takes over, just to bring everyone back to August 2016, Fox News exposes traitor Megyn Kelly kicks her out for backing Hillary. (laughs) That was like the first or second day after they fired all the humans. So we're ramping up to the Greek tragedy. Hillary is working with um, that summer is working with the former Eric Smith, the you know former top executive at Google, Trump is working with uh, Brad Parscale, Brad Parscale, who I think had made a website or two, but they're doing like they're just sort of ravaging Facebook with their with the Trump campaign propaganda and in, in many cases a kind of fake. Yeah, news there are or- a lot of things that are going on at, during this time. So there's the fake news is starting to mount, and it's most importantly. Partly it's coming out of, you know, partisan sites on the far right in America, but a lot of it's also coming from bored teenagers in Eastern Europe trying to make a buck. And they see that if they put a story like Trump endorses, sorry, Pope endorses Donald Trump, it will get lots of readers. They can monetize those with ads. So there's all this stuff from 
nonpartisan 17-year-olds in Macedonia, which is amazing. <laughs> there's the Russian propaganda that we've been hearing about. And then, extremely importantly, as Stephen mentioned before, there's a team at Facebook that's showing Donald Trump how to use Facebook. And this is a thing that people sometimes forget, that the thing on Facebook that most drove Trump to victory wasn't Russian propaganda or fake news. It was the fact that he used the platform totally legally and exactly the way it was supposed to be used. Right? He used their campaign building, their ad marketing tools much more effectively than Hillary Clinton did. So what he would do is he would take his database of voters, upload all of their names into Facebook, right? Facebook then has all of their information about what everything they've liked, everything they've looked at, as well as all the information they've bought from other web companies about more or less everything they've ever done on the internet and where their mouse has been. He then takes those databases. He then creates something called lookalike audiences, which means this person is in your database or this person has bought a hat and they visited these websites, subscribed to these magazines and read these articles. Let's find other people who are like them, who often bought your hats or haven't joined your database and let's target them with ads. Mm -hmm. The ads are relatively cheap because they're in you know rural areas where there's not a lot of sort of bidding in the ad markets and the ad auctions. And so Trump uses these incredible tools. Right? Facebook has built the best direct marketing tools in history and he uses these to build his fundraising database, to get people to rallies, to get more attention. And because his ads generate a lot of attention, they mm. spread quickly and actually the price drops, right? Because the more attention your ad gets, the less you have to pay for it, mm. right? Because that's one of the ways Facebook ad auctions work. So basically, Facebook builds this machine, which is incredibly good. Yeah. And Trump uses it incredibly well. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. And from a legal perspective, there's only something wrong from it in that, you know, Facebook at its core is about promoting and spreading outrage. That's the way the core algorithm works. Hmm. And so one of the reasons that Trump's stuff worked so well is both that he used it and noticed it more than Hillary and also because he's an outrage candidate. Well, and there's there's one more problem. And, and that is that this system that Trump exploited so deftly is not healthy for a democratic republic or uh, or any country that aspires to be a democratic republic. You know, what you have in that situation and what we saw Trump's campaign do is put up hundreds of versions of ads, very precisely targeted, constantly A-B tested and riding out invisibly to the targeted voters with no way to respond to claims that were specious or untrue, no way of mounting a counter campaign, no way of really engaging a public, especially a you know, a, a, a deliberative public in the affairs of the nation, you know, that that very targeted, precise advertising model, which is so brilliant, the most successful advertising model ever created by human beings is, of course, terrible for your basic magazines and newspapers, but it's also terrible for democracy, as wonderful as it is for shoe companies and toothpaste companies and razor blade companies, as wonderful as it is for Facebook, it could not be worse for democracy because the real machinations of politics disappear from any sort of examination or public deliberation. There's no chance for response. It was all fairly invisible and there was just no accountability. And that's the system we've built. And unfortunately, that's what everybody running for office from both parties in this country uh, is, is going to exploit in the coming year and then and probably for years after. And it's what people around the world have been exploiting for some time. It's funny to think that one of the best 
marketing things that has ever happened for Facebook ads is Trump's victory and then all the press coverage about how effectively he used it, right? So this podcast, mm. any politician listening to it is thinking, right. oh, I should upload my voter file to Facebook and build mm. lookalike audiences <laughs> and sell hats. And, <laughs> right. you know, I don't know. I used to work at The New Yorker. How do you think we got people to subscribe? Yeah. We use Facebook lookalike targeting tools. I mean, they're very effective. I guess where, where you get some of that, when you get into the nitty gritty of those, of finding those lookalike audiences is when, at least with the Trump campaign and their, their project Alamo operation, um, that's where you find the unsavory stuff about, you know, if people had used the phrase, open quote, hate Jews, close quote, they were, um, they were then, you know, sort of in the family part of lookalike. I don't know if that's, um, if that's just how the sausage is made, or if that's something that we, that you end up sort of amplifying or, I don't know, poltergeisting um, hate speech, you know, that there must be some way to move that from unsavory to illegal. I don't know whether, I know, we know from ProPublica investigations that you can buy ads on phrases like hate Jews and things like that. I haven't haven't seen any evidence that Trump did that. I know that, you know, Trump used all these tools to, you know, suppress the black vote as best as he could, right? Identifying people who might be wavering Hillary Clinton saying, don't vote. We know that right. he did that. I don't know whether hate speech was incorporated into what they did. It could have been, yeah. but I've never seen evidence of that. So now what do you do to prevent that specific example? There are a couple of pressure points where you can stop it. One, you can, yeah. as ProPublica has very effectively done, you expose you know, the kind of terms you can buy ads against and you shame Facebook into not allowing them. Facebook doesn't want that to happen. Two, you pass regulations saying that all advertisements that a political party or a candidate runs, even if micro-targeted, have to be at least publicly accessible in a database. Mm-hmm. And then people can at least search. Right. Which is um, currently a, a bill uh, in the Senate, but unlikely yeah. to be passed at this point. Let's talk about the indictment. So Trump gets elected. Mark Zuckerberg initially in a very brittle way says he thinks it's crazy that fake news on Facebook influenced the election. He also said in that in that uh, press conference something I thought was very interesting, which is something like people I don't have the quote exactly right, but people vote on their lived experience, not on what they see in Facebook, which was is is a kind of amazing moment in in our digital times to say that there is a lived experience that's very very different from of course our digital experiences uh he does that but then he then um zuckerberg goes on a walkabout that looks a little bit like he's running for president and has been kind of trying seeming to want to come to terms with what facebook's role is not exactly getting down on his knees and begging for forgiveness but at least confronting the fact that that you know facebook has a a big role in the polity or, you know, in uh, as a civilization of billions of people in determining what kind of information affects voters and citizens of the world. And uh, and then up to and including first the revelations that uh, Russian entities had made certain buys and had fraud accounts on Facebook. And then the indictments by Robert Mueller of um, of a bunch of Russian nationals and Russian entities who had used Facebook extensively. So that's almost brings us up to the present moment because that was uh, just the 16th. Well, that's not the present moment <laughs> in today's terms. That's uh, 20, 10 years so ago. Just happened, yeah. But um, February 16th, those indictments came down. Um, what did you make of them, Siva? Oh, my gosh. Well... <laughs> Uh, like the rest of the world, first of all, I did not expect something so broad. I also didn't expect a document that would so clearly explain the 
pernicious influence or role of Instagram and Facebook. So I'm, you know, I'm still trying to sort through the big story, but I was, I was thrilled much like Nick's story in, in Wired the week before. I was just thrilled to see it all laid out. You know, I think I think yeah. this was one. You know, we uh, all of the news about Facebook and all the news about the Russia investigation has has flown at us so frenetically. It's been really hard for us to grasp a plot with any of it. Right? We we always we always forget what happened ten days ago. Absolutely, because the next big thing comes. So so that was my my first reaction. It's like, okay, this is a wonderful clarifying moment for those of us who've been trying to make sense of it, but also for general, for citizens in general. Uh, I also thought it just became impossible at that moment for people at Facebook to deny or minimize the role that they have played and benefited from in one of the most audacious criminal acts against the United States of America. You know, I thought, Oh my gosh, there's just no way they're going to do anything but say, we're really sorry. We're, we're going to, I was hoping, of course, it's not going to happen. I, you know, we're going to open up our data to uh, a, a select group of researchers and help us figure out exactly what's going on. That's always been my fantasy, but it's probably never going to happen. So a couple of things. When I read the indictment, I read it slightly differently from, I think, most people. And I read all of the descriptions of what had happened on Facebook and the chronology and the TikTok about the private messages. Yeah. And my reading was... Well, this shows how Facebook was used. My other reading was this stuff came from Facebook, right? Like clearly what happened is Facebook went to Mueller and said, here's all the data we have. We have done just the investigation that everybody has asked Mm. us to do. We have not made it public. We are giving it to you, Mr. Mueller. And then Mueller lays it all out in the indictment. So I actually read the indictment and thought, hmm, that's a pretty impressive work by Facebook. Like they have done it. They've come clean. They've given him everything. Now, we, of course, don't know the full story because we don't know anything about Mueller. To your question about, or your your comment about there should be a full report, yes, there totally should. The weirdest thing that's happening right now is there are two investigations going on. There's the Capitol Hill investigation and there's the Mueller investigation. Mm-hmm. We learn about the Mueller investigation through indictments and legal proceedings, but that means you only get snippets, right? right. You don't yeah. get things that can't appear in an indictment. There must be way more that Facebook sent that's not in the Mueller indictment. What you should learn if we had a functioning Congress would be they would publish the full report, like the equivalent or assign the 9-11 Commission report, and that would go through the Senate Mm -hmm. and House Intel Committees. But those committees are both such partisan wrecks Mm -hmm. that we're not going to get that. And so it seems entirely possible that the role of piecing it all together is going to come from journalists who don't have subpoena power, Mm -hmm. right? Right. So one of the sad things about the partisanship is that we're not going to know everything. And there are a ton of unanswered questions about what happened on Facebook and on social media. So the Mueller indictment gives us this very little snippet about IRA activities, right? The propaganda Mm -hmm. activities. We don't know about the GRU activities. We don't know about the real Russian hacking operations. We don't know how Facebook was possibly used with sort of the WikiLeaks potential info ops operation, right? So there's Mm -hmm. all kinds of like state-sponsored hacking, really high-level stuff that happens, We don't know about that stuff. We've just got Mueller on the sort of lower level propaganda operations. We still know nothing about whether there's communication between Trump and the Russians, the Trump campaign and the Russians. Presumably, if there was and if Facebook has it, we'll find out about it in an ultimate Mueller indictment. But we still have no idea about that. So information is coming at us slowly, piecemeal, and there's still a bunch of unanswered questions. And you can blame Facebook partly for not coming completely clean, but you also can blame 
Congress for being such a mess. Yeah, that, I mean, that, I think that's a, I think that's a, a very good point. It is it is astounding that as we all try to figure this out with the tools of journalism, that uh, you know Mueller basically earns him and his team a Pulitzer every week with these these uh, indictments that keep dropping. Um, I think I was saying on Twitter last night that I try to read all of them, but it's like being a yeah, fan a, of Joyce Carol Oates because he barely keep up with how <laughs> prolific Mueller is. Um, so then. Um, uh, Rob Goldman, who is the VP of ads, maybe a VP of ads at Facebook. I don't even know exactly what that role is, but he um, came to Twitter. This is sort of interesting phenomenon where to like fight it out in the on the main stage. Um, Facebook types will will come to, come over to to Twitter to the to enemy territory. And he started a thread, a little bit disingenuously, I think, saying very excited to see the Mueller indictment today. And um, and then uh, and then said some quite defensive things um, about Facebook. I think uh, Siva, yeah. I think you and I quickly agreed that um, that there was something uh, agitating and tone deaf <laughs> about this. Not to mention factually, I mean, wrong. isn't it weird to um, say you're excited tell- about an indictment? I mean, like, I'm not sure anybody. <laughs> well, come on, I mean, I was excited I don't know. about Virginia comparator and Joyce Carol Oates. Sorry, like, she's clearly <laughs> excited by the indictments. I'm, I, I was I print look, them out I, nobody, on Moroccan bound leather. <laughs> nobody wants to see uh, you know Mueller get closer to to the Oval Office than I do, but I'm not excited. I'm like deeply hurt, right? I mean, like the the truth of it, like I I don't want yeah. any of this to be true, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it yeah. was it was I just thought it was a, a weird thing. I were so excited by the meal, but what really caught me about it, you know, the thing that got most people riled up was his seeming dismissal of the idea that you know the IRA efforts, which you know, which were the sort of center of the indictment, had seemed to him to be more focused on disrupting the institutions of democracy in this country than supporting Trump for president. Uh, And he made it sort of a simple either or thing. And I I think a lot of people justifiably react and said, wait a minute, like, you know, Mueller clearly said that they were pushing Hillary down and Trump up. And the safest thing and the most appropriate thing to say about that is that those are not uh, those are not contradictory notions, right? Supporting Trump for president can very much be in line with undermining America's faith in democracy and democratic institutions, which is why we have a president who didn't get the votes of the American people and and who has devoted his life to openly right. undermining democratic institutions, right? So, so like, there's nothing contradictory about. So that was so I I I was sort of pushed that to the side. It's like, okay, fine. Like, again, he's being indelicate. What really set me off was uh, one of the tweets late in the string where he basically said. What we need to do in this country is develop the sort of immune system that Finland has, that Sweden has, that the Netherlands has. uh, And we have to do that through media education. And to me, that was shifting the burden to the victims, the people, the citizens of the United States. Also, this idea that there's some sort of media education, digital literacy, he called it, that is somehow going to get us to see through photoshopped images and Facebook groups called blacktivists that aren't actually blacktivists, um, you mm-hmm. know, was just 
so insulting, absurd, uneducated. The invocation that uh, of of Finland and Sweden and the Netherlands as somehow model countries that have media education embedded in them that insulates them without any recognition that they have completely different media systems, state-funded public service television, subsidized newspapers that center their politics on a set of facts and debates, right? Very serious journalistic customs that are that are so different from what we have in the United States, right? Like, and and the the historical stuff, right? The notion that Finland has for five hundred years been worried about their their big brother next door, and and they've yes. been invaded a couple. Like, they're terrified of Putin, like they were terrified of Stalin, like they were terrified of the Tsar. You know, they're obviously going to have a sense of cultural and political resistance to anything that smells like information warfare from Russia. So like that, that just, that really set me off. I thought this is, if this is a sort of disingenuous message, again, meant to distract responsibility, a sense of responsibility from Facebook, which I thought was, was just totally unnecessary. And did you read it that way too, Nick? Yeah, I read it. I I read there as being four problems with his tweet stream, right? The first was it was contradicting the Mueller indictment, which seemed like a mistake in lots of ways. And I think Facebook internally saw that as a mistake to the obvious error in focusing on the ads, not the organic content. Three, the sort of absurd notion about media education. And then fourth, he had this throwaway line about his opinion hasn't been pushed forward because it doesn't fit the main media narrative. Oh, yeah. And that like that felt like typical Trumpist when there's news out there that's not good for me, blame the media. And I resent that as a member of the media and I resent that as an American because part of the role of the media is to present us with neutral facts that we can have conversations about. And you can argue about media slant here, media slant there. But clearly, one of the reasons we're now in this post-truth era is because Trump and others have cracked away at the notion that there can be fair media and there can be objective facts. So that really upset me. One of the things that also really interests me is that I, of course, was interested in this. And of course, called, you know, we talked to 51 people for the long story, call them all back, not all of them. And somebody, um, I I get a hold of the apology that Rob Goldman writes internally. And so I published that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so I published his internal apology. It wasn't given me by PR. It's given me by, you know, it gets to me through Facebook. Um, and then I publish it and all of these smart friends of mine start saying, that's bogus. He wasn't going out of school. He didn't apologize. He was set up by Zuckerberg. Like his initial tweets were, you know, cleared by comms. Like there's a real Uh. feeling that actually his pushback against the indictment was a trial balloon put out by Facebook. Now, I think that's completely wrong. I think it's interesting that people are so cynical about Facebook. The reason I think it's completely wrong is that. A, a whole bunch of people I trust told me that he genuinely was tweeting by himself out of school. Comms didn't clear it and did apologize. Yeah. Two, make no sense. Like, they're not stupid. Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg are not dumb. They're not going to you know, put forward bogus arguments. And the third reason, and ultimately, if Facebook really wanted to use a VP of ads to discredit the Mueller investigation, they actually have a genuinely good argument they could use which is that if you look at the overall data and reach of all the Russia stuff and compare it to like the overall reach of like a general Frosted Flakes advertising campaign, it's fairly small, right? And that's data that a VP of ads would have and could put forward. So he like didn't use, and if he had put that forward, we all would have fought him over like lots of different reasons and it's complicated. But A, 
I trust the people who told me. B, he put forward bad arguments. And C, he did not put forward the one reasonable argument that a VP of ads at might have had if he wanted to discredit wheelhouse. it. At least it's yeah. his wheelhouse, yes. Um, he, uh, To my surprise, the uh, the thread is still up on Facebook. If you look at uh, look at Rob Goldman, who tweets us at our objective. Um, he's it's still up, up on Twitter. It's still up on Twitter. Sorry, that's right. And um, so, how how do we how do we leave this? I mean, do you think that Facebook will be named in more indictments? Um, the guessing again at the mind of Mueller. And do you think that they'll do? Is there more soul searching being done? I guess in house there is my question for so, Nick. How about that first? Well, I'll actually answer the first part. Yes, there's massive soul searching going on. Right. I genuinely believe that Zuckerberg has been shaken by the last two years you know we put a cover uh, the cover images of him sort of bloodied but also like looking looking towards the future i really think there's a lot of soul searching going on there i really think that the changes they've announced in the last two months which may create some problems are all about trying to reverse it and trying to change the way the way the algorithm functions to you to the first question though will we see more from Mueller? yeah right the thing you could see from Mueller and the thing that is possible is the thing I presume that he is looking at the most closely. Was there collusion between the Russian government and the Trump campaign? Yeah. There are a lot of people who believe that some combination of Trump, Cambridge Analytica, his sort of um, data advisors who are working with Kushner and the Trump campaign and the Russian government or the IRA collaborated, right? And that perhaps... Trump set his voter files to the Russians to help them figure out how to target ads. Or perhaps mm. there's other communication that was sent. Facebook knows the answer to that, or at least knows a lot more about the answer to that than we do. So if there is another Mueller indictment, and if it involves Facebook, it would involve Don Jr., Kushner, and all of that stuff. Do I expect that to happen? No, because I don't think that happened. I don't think there was that collusion. I don't think there was that collaboration. But if there was, that's when you're going to see another Facebook and Mueller indictment. So if there's another indictment and Facebook's in it and Mueller puts it out, it's going to be crazy and it's going to be moving us one step closer to the Oval Office. But I don't think it's going to happen. But I agree with Nick that I don't see the, you know, indictments going along those lines. I do. I I suspect this is we're talking. We're talking just to recap, Nick. I mean, we've we've said IRA many times. I am maybe the only person in the world that still thinks of the Irish Republican Army. (laughs) Um, But the um, but anyway, that's the Internet Research Agency, the most forgettable name in the world that um, that bought these ads um, and that may have been working with Cambridge Analytica, the Mercer backed um, data organization that is either extremely nefarious and effective or, uh, you know, a bunch of Keystone cop, you know, data people who can't get anything done. Snake oil salesman. Snake oil salesman, exactly. And uh, Project Alamo, overseen by um, Jared Kushner, but also run by Brad Parscale that did the the digital operations for the Trump campaign and worked very, 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 very closely with Facebook. Um, So someone looking to find collusion, criminal criminal conspiracy, might look at that nexus. There are probably other more promising nexuses, um, but but anyway. I mean, I I think it's pretty clear that the most likely... um, point of collusion, uh, point of conspiracy involves WikiLeaks and the the hacks of Podesta, uh, those sorts of collaborations, which we already know, you know, Donnie Jr. has expressed an interest in those things. Uh, so like we've, you know, we know there was a meeting in Trump Tower about that stuff. So that is much more likely to ultimately show up in some sort of obstruction of justice indictment or some sort of uh, conspiracy indictment from Mueller. But the stuff that 
where any sort of voter information was changed. And I really doubt that, first of all, you don't need Cambridge Analytica to do anything, right? As as Nick explained, everything inside Facebook gives you the power to so accurately target voters, you don't need any anything else. Secondly, campaigns know that all this psychometric mumbo jumbo that Cambridge Analytica has been trying to sell is pretty useless when the really valuable voter data comes from the secretary of state of every state in the United States, right? That That's mm-hmm. where you get the voter rolls. And you have these pretty good commercial databases that the major parties have been subscribing to for years. So like there's so much information on this out there. And you combine that with the stuff Facebook will do for you, you don't need Cambridge Analytica for any of this stuff. But I think if we're going to see anything about sort of Facebook being part of the transaction, of course, thoroughly unintentionally, but part of the transaction, you're going to get it from my senator, John Warner. Uh, Mm. I'm sorry, Mark Warner, my senator, Mm -hmm. Mark Warner, who is, um, you know, who is really fascinated by yeah. all of these rules, criminal and not criminal, all of these these permutations. So I think Mark Warner's efforts, his office, uh, you know, he's the um, minority uh, leader of the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee. They are they are really digging into this stuff to the best of their ability. So that's, I think, where we're going to start hearing more about this stuff. Well, and that's interesting, right? So you can imagine a scenario where if the House and Senate flip in 2018, you will have the House and Senate investigations change the way they're operating, and then you actually could have the, the thing, full story told. The, the thing, thing you're that we all fantasizing want. about. Yeah, exactly. I right. think the um, yeah the full boxed set of the exact 9-11 Commission style report about all this, which would finally set our minds to rest. And I, I, guess, I have to stop dreaming that there's going to be the truth. Is some, I feel like I've started this kind of heaven world where it's all going to be explained to me sometime in the future and i'm not well, sure i'll ever I mean, get there we do have wired wired can do it for us. we do right. we do have speaking wired speaking <laughs> of the whether facebook will appear in many more indictments one other thing that's interesting is that if you agree with my interpretation of the Mueller indictment which is that one of the most interesting thing it shows is that facebook is massively collaborating not collaborating massively cooperating with Mueller. you can imagine that he subpoenaed internal communications among Trump campaign people, right? Mm-hmm. Like messages sent over Facebook Messenger, possibly stuff sent over WhatsApp, though all that's encrypted. Who knows if Facebook even has that? Huh. Um, but you can imagine that perhaps the level of cooperation they showed in the indictment is a sign that they've cooperated on other stuff and that in future Mueller indictments, you'll see that Facebook was a source of information. I don't know, but that would be, I think, a natural reading of the last indictment. All right. Well, we're on the edge of our seats for the next indictment, as usual. Um, (laughs) Thanks very, very much, Nick and Siva, for joining me on Trumpcast. Thanks, Eugene. It was awesome to talk to you and awesome to talk to you too, Siva. Yeah, likewise. This was fun. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Do you follow us on Twitter? We're at RealTrumpcast. Go to at RealTrumpcast for all things Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.